It is such a pleasure to welcome back the author of The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Mark Soames, welcome back, sir. Wonderful to be back, Aidan. We've up until now just covered the cortical fallacy. And the next aspect is so essential. And it's all about feelings. And I'm going to hand over the mic to you and please bring it as deep as you wish. And this also touches deeply into the work of your friend and colleague, Jak Prensop, which is so important, his work and, and I'd love to touch on each of those feelings in turn, Mark, and this will probably take us beyond one episode. But please take us away. Thanks. Ed. The, the, um, it's correct. Uh, what you say about uh, Jak Panksepp having having uh, really taught me um, almost everything I know about feelings. But um, I, I would like to start with how it is that I came uh, to uh, contact him. Uh, we spoke earlier about the fact that I, I studied brain mechanisms of sleep and dreaming, uh, because the only way you could study consciousness in the early 80s was to study sleep and wakefulness. You know, that was the respectable version of it. Um, and so um, my research in that area uh, led me to the conclusion that uh, dreaming was driven by a circuit that starts uh, in the brainstem in an area called the ventral tegmental area. Uh, it's a dopaminergic circuit, uh, which, which um, activates various forebrain structures. And uh, it was that that uh, directed my interest uh, to these brainstem arousal structures, um, which I had previously thought of, like we all did, um, as just being a kind of light switch, you know, that the reticular activating system is a kind of power supply, doesn't have anything interesting to, to do mentally. It just kind of, you know, uh, it's a prerequisite uh, for, 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 for powering the system up. But, but, uh, Jak Panksepp, uh, had a very different view about what these brainstem arousal structures are doing. And so it was via my discovery that this circuit drove the dream process, uh, and that it wasn't just switching on the lights. It was a motivational, um, mechanism of, of great power. Uh, and so I, it was in 1998, I read his uh, magnum opus, um, which was called Affective Neuroscience. And that was a, just a complete eye-opener to me. And it was then that I contacted him in 1998 um, and, uh, in, in, and, and began a, a scientific collaboration. We, we met personally for the first time in, in, in the, the year following. Um, so um, what he taught me, was that the most basic form of consciousness is just raw feeling. Um, and, and what goes with that is uh, the realization that consciousness, to say the obvious, you know, consciousness, like everything else, evolved. Um, and what we have, our human um, uh, enormously complex and sophisticated and impressive cognitive, intellectual, uh, reflective type of consciousness, uh, that this is this bears no or very little resemblance to its earliest forms. The earliest forms of consciousness, uh, as Yark taught me, um, and as with hindsight looks like kind of obvious, 
would have been just the simplest um, glimmerings of a, an awareness that I am hungry or I am thirsty or I am in pain, um, that this is bad. I must avoid this. Um, the, 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 this is warm. This is good. You know, so, so very, very elementary uh, sensations uh, of goodness and badness. Um, this is the, where the dawn of consciousness took this sort of form. Um, I know it's a far cry from the complexities that we experience, but it makes very good sense just in first principles terms. But also when you study the actual anatomy and physiology of consciousness, you see, you can't miss the fact that these structures, these very basic brainstem structures, uh, are the source of consciousness. In other words, all the other forms of consciousness are contingent upon their contribution. If those areas are damaged, then everything else goes. And uh, what is more, that this prerequisite uh, 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 power supply of consciousness uh, generates raw feeling. That's that's what it does. Um, and what is more, that these structures in the brainstem that generate raw feeling, which is the elementary foundational form of consciousness, uh, are also um, intimately bound up with nuclei in the brainstem that uh, monitor the state of the, of the of the body, the state of the of the organism itself. So this basic idea uh, of there being a goodness and a badness um, is tied to a value system, uh, the, which is the fundamental value system that underpins all life forms. Namely, that it's good to survive and bad to die. Uh, this is uh, the, this just is so. For this is how life emerged: is that uh, those kinds of organizations, uh, which 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 did those things, which kept them organized and avoided those things that led to their dissipation, um, those things are what have uh, what have. Uh, survived and reproduced and ultimately led to us. So there is a deep value system built into the very basis of being a living thing, uh, which is that it is good to continue being a living thing. Um, and feeling um, is how we become uh, aware of how we're doing uh, within that value system. Uh, so, so pleasurable feelings mean you're heading in the right direction. This is good for me. Um, it feels good. This is what motivates you to continue to do this thing. Uh, and the opposite with bad feelings. It means this is bad for me, even though you don't know what it means. You just feel it. This is bad. Uh, so I avoid it. Um, this is the bedrock um, of what feelings are. And feelings are the bedrock of what consciousness is. Consciousness evolved so that we living things can register how well or badly we're doing. Now, of course, there were many living things prior to those living things that have this capacity to register their own state um, subjectively. 
And uh, so the question arises, what does the capacity to feel how well you're doing um, add to a kind of a reflex mechanism, which whenever you're going in the wrong direction, you just whack it back in the right direction? Why do you need to feel it? Um, And my answer to that question is that if you feel it, then you can monitor whether what you're doing is working or not. If all you have is a reflex, you know, this is bad, do that. Uh, You don't need to monitor whether it's working or not because it's all you've got. Um, But to transcend reflex, in other words, to transcend automatism, uh, and uh, uh, which is which is to introduce the possibility of choice and voluntary behavior, something over and above what is just built into your basic design. That it, it, the, the 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 possibility of being able to try something out, uh, and then to uh, to be able to determine before it ends in tears, in other words, in death, uh, to de- to determine this is going badly. Uh, I, I, I'll pull back from that. Ooh, this this looks promising. I'll, I'll continue with that. That's the very basis of of voluntary behavior, uh, and therefore of choice, and therefore of free will. Everything that consciousness is about, uh, it enables us to to unshackle ourselves from reflex, um, hardwired, automatic, pre-programmed, uh, you know, um, obligatory responses. So the capacity to be able to feel how well you're doing. Uh, this goodness and badness, the technical term for it is valence. It is the keynote of what feeling, of what distinguishes feeling from everything else in the universe. It has an intrinsic goodness and badness. And please notice that that goodness and badness applies to me. So it's good for me uh, and bad for me, you know, so, so it's, it is inherently subjective. In other words, it's about my state. How am I doing? Is, am, am I doing well or badly? Um, so we there have the, 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 the two core, two of three core ingredients of feeling. So not, one is it's about me. It's my state that I'm registering. Uh, and secondly, it has an intrinsic goodness or badness. In other words, a valence. So it's subjective and it's valence. But the third fundamental property of feeling is that each feeling has a different quality. So although they all have a goodness and badness, uh, the goodness of of quenching your thirst is quite different from the goodness of sleeping when tired, is quite different from the goodness of withdrawing from a painful uh, uh, burn, uh, which is quite different from the goodness of relieving your bladder when it's full. You know, so the quality, the qualitative difference between these different categories of feeling um, is the third fundamental property of feeling. Um, And uh, I'd like to spend a moment explaining that. Um, If it were just a matter of um, total need, you know, uh, because what we're talking about is the needs, the organism meeting its needs. Um, Not meeting your needs is bad. Meeting your needs is good. If it were just a total kind of, as long as I'm meeting my needs in in general, I'm doing well, uh, then you could just have one thing called need. um, And you could say, Two out of ten of um, thirst plus uh, um, plus eight out of ten uh, of sleepiness makes makes ten out of twenty of total need, um, and that that would imply all you need to do is sleep in order to reduce the total number. 
and if, if you did that and never drank, you would die. You know, so the point is that each one of these needs uh, in us complex organisms, uh, which have multiple needs, each one of these needs has to be met in its own right. Therefore, they have to be treated as what are called categorical variables. It's not one continuous variable called you know, total need, but rather the categories of need. Um, and, and, and categorical variables are distinguished qualitatively. So that, that, that you can't reduce them to a common denominator. So you have to have quality. Uh, categorical variables imply qualitative differences. And so these are the fundamental properties of, of, of feeling, which is the most basic form of consciousness, that it's subjective, that it's valenced, uh, and that it's qualitatively uh, differenti differentiated. Um, so that's, that's enough to say what feelings are in general. Um, perhaps I should say one other thing is that there, there's a mechanism that all feelings um, uh, are governed by, and that mechanism is called homeostasis. Uh, which is just to say that there's a certain place where you need to be, like 36 and a half to 37 and a half degrees Celsius. That's where you need to be. If you move beyond that, uh, say, for example, uh, uh, too hot, it feels bad. Um, it, it, likewise, with how much water you need uh, uh, in relation to salt. You know, if there's too much salt, too little water, it feels bad. That's called thirst. Uh, Likewise, blood gas balance, you know, too little uh, oxygen, too much carbon dioxide feels like, <laughs> you know, respiratory distress uh, feels bad. Uh, each of them feels bad in their own particular way. But the mechanism is the same, which is I need to be here. Uh, a deviation from there uh, is called homeostatic error. Homeostasis is there. This is an error. This is a deviation from where you need to be. It feels bad. Um, and you then need to do something that gets you back to where you need to be. And if you're heading in the wrong direction, it feels worse. If you're heading in the right direction, it feels better. Um, but once you get back into homeostasis where you need to be, then feelings disappear. You don't feel, I'm not hungry, I'm not thirsty, I'm not sleepy, I don't need to defecate. <laughs> it's, you just don't feel these things at all uh, when, when, you're, when you're in homeostasis. So that's another general thing to say about feelings is they, they, they're all governed by this very, very basic biological principle called homeostasis. Let me pause to let you get a word in edgeways. There's so much more in there. And it, we're, we're, this is the difficulty with this book is that it, it covers every aspect. You've left literally no page unturned with the amount of research that you've put in here. But I, I'm going to try and bring it back to uh, this show as well. So some of the things about the show are thinking, decision making, learning, and you say that there's a lot more that we need to know by feelings such as the how they enabling learning from experience. So this is the whole it was it good for me? Is it not? And the law of effect, and then how they relate to thinking are also important when it talks about feelings. Perhaps you'll give us some insights on this. What I've described so far, is what enables us here and now to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing. Uh, once you've done that, um, it's obviously an enormous adaptive advantage to be able to register, to make a record of this move was bad, uh, it felt bad, this move was good, it felt good. So the next time you're in the same situation, you don't reinvent the wheel, 
you know, you you know now, okay, I know what to do. I'm in this situation. This is the thing that makes you feel good. Um, and that the behaviorists discovered that, Thorndike discovered that. It was it was the it's it's how operant conditioning works. In other words, um, what what governs uh, the behavior of an animal uh, in the ongoing trial and error of of living. Um, that's what operant conditioning is. It's just in in the operation of trying to stay alive. Uh, what makes you choose one path and avoid another path? Uh, they call this the law of effect, uh, namely that if anything you do that's rewarding. Uh, you will you will do more. Anything you do that's punishing, uh, you will do less. Um, and that law, although behaviorists didn't recognize feelings, uh, they spoke of these things called rewards and punishments. I mean, what what is a reward if not a feeling, uh, and what is a punishment if not a feeling? So it really was as Yark Panksep, who we mentioned earlier, renamed it not the law of effect, but the law of affect. In other words, this is the, the the most basic principle governing learning is we avoid things that feel bad and we approach things that feel good. Um, and so this this is the, the, the most basic principle learning from experience. Um, and uh, this is this is what learning is for. It's so that you can now predict on the basis of past experience uh, what what to do in the future. I, I always say to my students, Memory is about the past, but it's for the future. Uh, it's it's memory is for prediction. Um, you know that, that, that's 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 the basic principle governing learning. So um, the you know then then comes the question of of thinking. Uh, well, thinking is just an imaginary kind of doing. So rather than actually trying things out in reality, uh, which comes with risk. Trial and error comes with error, uh, and errors are dangerous for us us living things. Um, so to be able to act in a virtual reality, uh, an imagined world, if I were to do this, uh, what would happen? If I were to do that? So feelings, um, again, are deployed, uh, but they're deployed in virtual reality rather than in actual reality. Um, and so this very simple mechanism this homeostatic mechanism, this mechanism that gives rise to feeling, uh, which enables voluntary behavior, in turn gives rise to learning um, and and to thinking. And uh, now there's uh, the, the next step, which is cognition in general, um, which is where we think in terms of um, rational and logical errors rather than affective uh, felt goodnesses and badnesses. There are there are Logico, uh, uh, grammatical rights and wrongs, um, and and the, the, the they are ultimately tethered uh, to feelings in in the following way. Um, we have the feeling, the good or bad feeling, uh, which which drives everything we do. Uh, I, I'm speaking now in terms of the most basic principles. Um, so it's what's driving what I'm doing is, is this, is this working or is this not working in terms of feeling good or bad feeling? Uh, but then it becomes a matter of, is this the right or the wrong thing to do? So, you know, uh, uh, rationally speaking, logically speaking, uh, 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 empirically speaking, uh, is this working or isn't this working? Uh, working in terms of, you know, the ultimate goals being, being, being uh, uh, affective goals. 
And so the way that we think about it is like this, uh, that the basic uh, uh, arousal mechanisms in the brainstem, uh, they uh, dictate the confidence that we have in a current policy. So if what I'm doing is leading to uh, the desired outcome, in other words, if it leads to good feelings, then I have confidence that this is a good policy. Remember, the policy is not itself a feeling. Uh, it is a plan. Uh, I'm going to do this, 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 this. Um, and if as you're doing this, 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 which is a cognitive plan, uh, a, a rational uh, sequence of, of, of actions, if that leads to good feelings, then you have increasing confidence in that policy or that plan. Uh, if it leads to bad feelings, uh, you have decreasing confidence in that plan. Um, and um, so the, 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 a pithy way of, of, of phrasing that is to say, if things turn out as expected, that's good. Um, if uncertainty prevails, that's bad. Um, so th this is how feeling uh, uh, governs our, our um, confidence in decision-making processes. Uh, policies are, are a sequence of decisions. Um, and all of cognition ultimately uh, can be reduced to that. It's a, it's a decision-making process, a yes and a no uh, in terms of choices that you, that you face, which are framed logically, rationally, empirically. Should I go left? Should I go right? Um, is, does two plus two make five or does two plus two make four? You know, all of these things ultimately are rooted in those value systems, but are not themselves direct expressions of the value systems. The, the term we use here, which I think is also a useful shorthand, uh, we, I spoke earlier of homeostasis. In other words, our, uh, our need to remain within our viable bounds. Um, and what we do in the outside world, uh, we call allostasis. Which is a, you know, it's, it's, it's an activity of its own. Allostasis, in other words, allo refers to external. Um, but ultimately it's tethered to homeostasis. Uh, it is what everything we do and think and plan and believe, um, uh, about uh, ourselves in the world and how the world works and all of that. Ultimately, it's all in the service of uh, survival. And reproductive success, as reductionistic as that sounds, um, that's 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 all of the evidence points to uh, the, the 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 conclusion that that's the basic mechanism. What's so important here uh, is that it first of all uh, points out that that feelings are not something fluffy. You know, feelings people think are oh, feely, touchy feely. You know, as opposed to hard rational uh, logic. Uh, uh, feelings are fundamental to what keeps us alive. Um, they are they are anything but fluffy. You know they are they are absolutely essential uh, to the basic business of of of, of surviving, uh, both as an individual and as a species. Uh, and and the other thing that's fundamental in all of this is that I hope it's uh, coming across from what I'm saying that uh, that consciousness. The basic form of which is feeling is nothing mysterious. You know, it's 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 not hard to to see how this basically fits in with everything else about what we know of of, of the governing principles of of, of life forms. You know, of, bi of biological uh, 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 processes. 
um, and uh, it's 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 completely uh, understandable in ordinary sort of natural scientific terms. There's there's nothing spooky about consciousness. Uh, you, you you don't need to invoke some kind of parallel universe beyond uh, the, the the natural scientific one in order to introduce subjective. What is it like to be an organism uh, uh, into the equation? Mark, there's a part that really jumped out to me, and particularly now that you've given this deep context, you said in the book, if a horse approaches me and I give it a sugar lump, it will, by the law of effect, be more likely to approach me again, whereas if I squirt a lemon in its face, it will be less likely to do so. According to Thorndike that you mentioned there, the sugar lump and the lemon themselves thereby become rewarding or punishing the, of the horse's behavior, there is no need to consider the feelings they evoke if such thing exists. So this is the behaviorist aspect. And I thought about that because many organizations are still run that way with that behaviorist, you know, reward or punishment, carrot or stick. And given just what you said there, where we're in a period of time in our lifetime where I have never experienced war or apart from recession in 2008-2009, pretty stable period of time. So things were predictable. And the same for people who ran governments or organizations, things were relatively predictable. And as you said, when the brain is constantly looking for that certainty, constantly, is it A or is it B? If it's not A, what I thought it was B, uh oh, I better learn for it to become A again. This causes real fear for people. And probably what we're sensing a little bit in society and in organizations today, maybe you have some thoughts on that. Yes, I do. I'm going to um, gloss over the, the scholastic business of behaviorism versus, um, versus uh, uh, affective uh, science. Uh, I, I don't think it matters that much. They, they, they spoke of rewards and punishments anybody knows what that means. The, the, the thing that's more important um, is because they spoke of reward and punishment in this purely behaviorist sense, uh, they, they couldn't, um, there was no space for the very point I mentioned to you earlier, namely that affects, feelings uh, are categorical variables. There isn't one thing called reward. Uh, there are different categories of reward. And um, they are qualitatively distinctive. So I'm going to take it for granted, take it as given, take it that everyone accepts this, uh, that actually what motivates us is how things feel. Uh, and, and, and so when you're trying to motivate employees or voters or, 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 or customers or whatever, um, ultimately what you're appealing to is things that are going to generate better feelings for them. They're going to feel better, if, or at least you're promising them. Uh, you're, trying to, you're trying to persuade them that they will feel better if they, if they buy your product or, um, you know, or, or, or work for your company or, or, or whatever the case may be. The, re the rewards, um, the felt rewards, are, are, are not of one kind. So we in, in Western uh, the, the, uh, democracies, uh, and, and, and capitalist societies I'm speaking of. You know, we, we, we seem to think that the fundamental reward is money. Uh, that seems to be the major currency that we use. Um, and uh, that's just one type of reward. 
uh, 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 there, there are actually other things that matter to people over and above um, the, the, their monetary rewards. Uh, some people will tell you that. They'll say, oh, well, I'm doing this job for the love of it. You know, I'm a teacher. There are different rewards uh, than, than monetary ones. Uh, I, I, I'm a, an ambulance driver or I'm a nurse or, you know, I'm a doctor. You can, you know, the brains you need to be a doctor uh, are, are pretty adequate for you to, to, to run a corporation, uh, but you choose not to uh, because money isn't what matters the most to everyone. Um, so, so what I'm, and I'm not pontificating. I'm wanting to make a more basic point, which is that we don't only have a thing called reward. We have multiple categories of reward. And I think it's important for people in decision making and leadership roles to understand that. Uh, if they're trying to motivate, uh, for whatever reason, you know, uh, either because they're trying to make money, uh, or because they're trying to do good, it's important for us to recognize that there are different categories uh, of motivation uh, that drive us. Now, um, what I was saying earlier, um, concentrated for the very most part on bodily uh, affects, you know, things like, as I've mentioned several times, pain, thirst, sleepiness, uh, you know, uh, air, air, respiratory distress, uh, etc. But the and I said that homeostasis lies behind those things. Uh, now, what I want to point out is the very same basic principle underpins our emotions, not bodily affects, emotional affects, things like fear and lust and rage uh, and and affectionate uh, 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 love. You know, the, the caring for your for your little ones, uh, these sorts of things, curiosity and interest in in the world, uh, the, these, these joys and sorrows that we call emotions are also fundamentally homeostatic and are also fundamentally biological and ultimately are there to, 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 to uh, help us in this business of, of, of staying alive, both as individuals and, and as a species. So let me just illustrate with a few sort of obvious examples. Fear. I mean, fear surely is an emotion. Uh, fear has a homeostatic set point, and namely, I am not in danger. That's where I need to be. You know, if I am in danger, that's a homeostatic deviation. That guy, that guy's coming for me. He's got a knife. <laughs> um, the, the feeling of fear is that is a particular unpleasant feeling. Valence is negative, with a particular quality uh, called trepidation. It's like, oh. Uh, and then you know you have a you have to have a prediction. What do I do? How do I get out of this situation? You're born with some predictions. Uh, in the case of fear, we are born with the reflex of freezing or fleeing, run. You know those those you're those you're born with. Um, but if you only had every time you felt anxious, uh, all that you could do is freeze uh, or bolt. Um, you would have an anxiety disorder. You know, it's a, that's too stereotyped a response. So we then need to learn from experience uh, what else to do other than freeze or run away. How else uh, can I uh, 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 make myself safe? Um, and what you need to do in different contexts is very different things. There are different types of dangers and there are different sorts of behaviors that are, are apt uh, in, in, in those different circumstances. 
there's, there, there, there's, you also need to learn what to fear and what not to fear. You know, there's some things that are dangerous. There's some things which are not, and you need to learn what they are. You're not born with the knowledge, um, for example, that touching an, a, a live electrical wire is dangerous. It's, this is not something evolution uh, ever, ever taught us. Uh, you have to learn it for yourself. So fear, I'm giving you an example of an emotion showing you how it's basically homeostatic and how it's basically designed to keep you alive. Um, and also some of the basic principles about how you have to learn from experience how to get back into homeostasis when it comes to that particular need called fear. Um, let's use another example, rage. Uh, again, that's an emotion, anger. Um, everyone knows what that is. Um, well, it's also homeostatic. Uh, there's a set point, which is I am not being, there are no frustrating uh, obstacles or impediments. There's nothing standing between me and what I want. If something is preventing me from getting what I want, it's frustrating. So that's a deviation from, yeah, there's, there's nothing standing between me and what I want. No, there is. That's a, that's a homeostatic deviation. It feels frustrating, irritating, annoying, you know, and then eventually enraging. And we have a built-in prediction as to what we need to do about that. Uh, this is this, we call them instincts or reflexes, uh, which is in this instance called affective attack. Uh, you, you see it in, in any mammal. Uh, you frustrate them enough, eventually, you know, they, they attack, um, teeth bared, claws out, uh, and lunging at the, at the, uh, uh, object of their wrath with the aim of annihilating it, getting rid of it. You know, that's, that's, and you can see why this is necessary. If you can't fight for your fair share, if, if, if any old bully can just push you out the way and, 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 and prevent you from getting what you need. Um, and you don't know how to, uh, uh, or not inclined to, uh, fight for your for your place in the sun. Uh, you're you're going to expire, you know. Uh, and so um, this 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 behavior uh, has been selected into the genome uh, like like anything else, like hunger and thirst. So to uh, rage uh, is 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 built into our into our very the very fiber of our being. Um, a third ex uh, affect is lust. I hardly need to explain why it's important for us as a species uh, to uh, to every now and then copulate with each other. Um, that's that's how that's how um, uh, the species survives. And and let me make an important point there uh, in passing. Please note the reason why there's such pleasure attaches uh, to sexual behavior is, in other words, why that's so rewarding to use the behaviorist term, is because uh, this is very important for our species to survive. And so uh, it, it's, it's very good for us. Uh, and so this is why that behavior becomes so rewarding. Um, uh, but when we uh, indulge in, in sexual uh, uh, behaviors, for the very most part, we are not thinking, I must do my biological duty now and reproduce. You know, it's, uh, so what motivates us is not the underlying evolutionary principles. What motivates us is the feeling. This feels good. Um, and and uh, in, in that simple uh, distinction between the underlying mechanisms and the subjective experience of the feeling, 
The feeling knows nothing of the evolutionary history. The feeling just knows itself. Um, we are the beneficiaries of the eons of evolution, uh, which, which, where, whereby we just know uh, what the right thing is to do because it feels good. Uh, you know, it's it's behind that lies an enormous legacy that we have every reason to be grateful for. But it also explains why there's such a variety of sexual behaviors. Um, you know, because there's many things you can do that feel good, even though they've got just about sod all chance of leading to reproductive success. One of the things you said there, Mark, is that the eons of evolution, and you do also tell us that these seven emotions that you select in the book here, and that J Yak talked about, were not only in all primates, but all mammals, and some of them in birds and birds and mammals split apart on the evolutionary trail 200 million years ago, which just shows how old these emotions are and how much they've been driving our behavior. And one of the reasons I think this is so important is we've done shows recently on dopamine and addiction. And if you understand that the emotions manifest differently, and they drive behavior differently, you can see how you can become a little bit more in control, or at least cognizant of them taking charge. Perhaps you'll tell us a bit, a bit about the evolution of this, and maybe some thoughts on that idea of, of recognizing them in action. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, uh, uh, before I come back to this point you've just made, I, something else you said just reminded me where I was coming from. I was saying, we need to know there are many different rewards, you know, so somebody's behavior can be driven by fear. Another person's behavior is driven by frustration. Um, and those two things can conflict with each other. So somebody might frustrate you and you want to attack them, uh, but they're bigger than you. So you're scared of them. Um, and so, you know, the, the what motivates us is a, a complex resultant of the interaction of these different, these different emotional needs. But now to come to your point about, um, about um, the evolutionary age of, of, of these um, drives. Uh, it's no surprise that they're so ancient because I hope it's apparent from what I'm saying how fundamentally important they are for the survival um, of, of, of the uh, individual and of the species. Um, if you didn't have a reproductive drive, uh, you know, you're not going to be a species. And so that one is way older. Uh, than 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 mammals uh, uh, and birds. Uh, it's a it's 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 fundamental drive to, to just about all living things. Um, when it comes to fear and rage, which I mentioned, uh, we share that uh, machinery. And I say machinery because remember, this is not just a philosophy. Uh, this is something uh, we can study these circuits that drive these behaviors uh, and the chemistry. Uh, and we can stimulate these circuits electrically or chemically. We can we can produce these 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 behaviors. Um, the, so the machinery uh, for fear and rage uh, we share with all vertebrates. All vertebrates uh, that is 550 million years uh, ago that vertebrates uh, appeared on the face of the earth. Uh, and then, as you say, uh, mammals uh, 200 million years ago. And you mentioned birds. Uh, the, the the birds um, and 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 uh, so they're called avians and mammals. Uh, they parted ways uh, 200 million years ago, but they share some behaviors. Uh, so uh, one of them, uh, which is in fact, let me make it the fourth 
uh, emotional affect uh, that I'm introducing uh, 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 our, our listeners to, um, it's, it's attachment bonding. Um, the technical name for this particular emotional drive uh, is panic slash grief, panic grief. I'll come back to that in a minute, but let's just call it attachment uh, now for short. Um, birds and mammals have this thing in common that they attach. They they form they form pair bondings, um, uh, and uh, and not only do they bond as pairs. In other words, the the the, the mating couple, which is driven by lust, but they then stick together uh, and look after their offspring, uh, and there comes uh, two attachment drives. Uh, the one that we call panic grief uh, is the, the little uh, bird or pup, the mammal pup or, or, or the little chick, uh, if it's a bird. Uh, it needs somebody to look after it. Uh, this is what birds and mammals have in common, is they can't look after themselves when they're born. So somebody has to do it for them. And so they have to latch on to somebody uh, and stick with them. Um, that's this panic grief drive. And why it's called panic grief is because the, the feeling that you have when you're separated from your caregiver is panic. Um, and please note what I said earlier about fear. It's a different type of anxiety entirely from panic. Fear is I'm in danger panic, and you avoid the, the, the object that, uh, that's bringing about the feeling. Whereas panic, which is separation distress, it's mommy, where are you? Um, and you approach, you look for her, you cry out. It's called separation, distress, vocalizations, and search behavior. And you see it in birds, and you see it in mammals, all of us, uh, including, of course, us humans. Um, you separate. Uh, uh, within the first six months of life, we attach to somebody, whoever reliably <laughs> looks after us. Uh, and once that has happened, uh, you become addicted to that person, literally. Uh, by the way, the brain chemical that mediates this circuit is 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 opioid driven. You know the same thing as as opiate drugs like like heroin and, and morphine. You know it's uh, it taps into this deep addiction system. You latch onto this this person who cares for you, and then you need her. And if you're separated from her, you have withdrawal symptoms, and you cry and you search for her. Um, that's the panic uh, side of things. The grief side of it uh, is if you do not establish reunion uh, by searching and and, and crying, uh, then you slump into a, a kind of heap uh, whereby you literally give up, give up hope. Um, and there's a long evolutionary story as to why that happens. I'll just cut it short by saying that um, the more you announce your, I'm a little mammal and there's nobody here to look after me, uh, the longer you do that, the greater the chances are that a predator will find you. Uh, the further you will wander from home base. So when mum comes back, you she won't know where you are, uh, and um, and so on. You're also using up metabolic resources. So horrible as it is, giving up hope um, is the best. Uh, on average, leads to the best chances of the of the of the little uh, separated creature uh, surviving. Um, and so that's one of those attachment drives. The other one we call care. Uh, when I said we little mammals need to be looked after, uh, somebody has to do that looking after. And, and there has to be something that motivates them to do it. And that's this nurturant care drive. 
again, you can see why for the species it's important uh, that you look after your offspring. Uh, if you don't, they're not going to survive and the species isn't going to survive. So those of our ancestors which felt inclined to look after little vulnerable dependent ones, uh, their offspring survived. Um, and so their genes get passed on. And so we have this wonderful altruistic uh, drive to to look after um, dependent and vulnerable, uh, not only our own offspring, uh, you know, any baby crying, it, it distresses you to see a baby uh, that's, that's that a little child that's lost. It causes us great alarm and, and, and we want to put it to rights and we want to protect the little thing and 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 and, and bring them back uh, you know into contact with with their with their families and and you know again remember there's conflict so these needs conflict with each other uh, we 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 want to uh, look after vulnerable little ones but we have other wants as well and so they conflict with each other and so you get like a a, a a beggar might come up to you on the streets and you know and and, and ask for for your assistance. Um, you know, on the one hand, you feel inclined to help. On the other hand, you feel you know, piss off. <laughs> so that's the that's the other drive, the rage one that I spoke of earlier. And so our behaviors. I can't emphasize enough how much a knowledge of these basic emotional uh, systems of the of the human and primate and mammal and in many respects vertebrate brain, uh, how, how enormously valuable it is for understanding what makes us tick. So I've spoken of of, uh, of fear, of rage, uh, of lust, uh, of, of panic, grief, of care, uh, and there are two more to come. You just said there, understanding this is so so useful. And one of the things I often witness and probably probably went through myself is when you have children, and your wife becomes a mother, she becomes less inclined to be addicted to you <laughs> as the husband for a multitude of reasons that is probably 10 books, probably a lot longer than these mark that, that for many different reasons. But you know, when you know about the chemicals that are mediated here, prolactin, progesterone, oxytocin, estrogen, it's a cocktail of drugs that are addicts the mother to the child and the child to the mother. When you understand that you almost have you have way more empathy and understanding. And it, it's so so important to understand those things, I think. And you, you know, you become less angry then and whatever kind of feelings you have. And you you realize that this is evolved. This is the way it needs to be for the survival of the species. Well, you've touched on many important topics there. First of all, the brain chemicals that you just enumerated, which are the ones that mediate the care drive, um, they are generally, uh, on average, they circulate at much higher levels in females than males, on average, much higher. Then uh, a female who is pregnant, uh, they saw, uh, uh, and and with natural childbirth, uh, more so. They just uh, the 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 it's exponential the increase um, in in these uh, uh, brain chemicals. In other words, it, the increase in the intensity of the need to care. Um, the, the the nurturant maternal instinctual 
uh, feelings just go through the roof. Um, I want to point out here that as, as much as this is a wonderful pro-social uh, uh, emotional need, it can lead to great distress. Remember, all of them are homeostatic. So it's a need uh, which you have to meet. If you can't meet that need, I, I can't put it to rights. The child doesn't stop crying. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, the, the, the feeling of, 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 of being useful and, and the confidence that I know how to look after my baby um, has, its, has its opposite. You know, the, I, I, I don't know what to do. Nothing I do works. Uh, I, I'm, I'm incompetent. I, 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 I'm the cause of this child's distress. I can't cope with this child's dependence on me. You know, so what we're talking about there is, is the extreme form of it is postpartum depression. Um, and that's not only, um, when I say only, you know what I mean. It's not only an emotional feeling. Uh, it is also a biological state because every emotional feeling is a biological state. So these hormones going out of kilter can drive you uh, mentally out of kilter. You know, the intensity of the, of the need uh, is proportionate to, you know, uh, how likely are you to be able to meet that need? Um, so, so that's, a, that's a, a, a second thing I wanted to say. Firstly, that on average, these, these, these needs are much greater in females, in pregnant females, especially after childbirth. Uh, secondly, that uh, they relate to, to mood states, which are positive and negative, uh, and, and, and including psychopathological states like postpartum depression, but also, you know, the normal versions of it. Every parent, you know, goes through some version of this. Um, and then thirdly, the other thing that you mentioned is with, with some uh, sort of uh, uh, amusement, uh, you said that when, you, uh, when you and your wife had your first child, uh, your wife became more keen on the child than on you. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you something interesting. The, the female uh, sexual circuitry, there's male and female. I spoke of the lust drive earlier. Uh, there are some aspects of the lust circuitry that are the same in males and females. Uh, I'm speaking all the time on the average because, of course, we are all of us on a spectrum, and those and the male and female averages overlap with each other. So you might be more female-like than male-like, but on the average, uh, the the uh, male and female sexual circuitry, some of it we share, uh, uh, other parts of it are, are are divergent. So there's male-specific sexual chemistries. Uh, and female-specific sexual chemistries and circuitries. Um, and the female-specific sexual circuitry and chemistry overlaps a lot with care. So uh, uh, um, I, I don't want to uh, say anything too controversial, but there, there is, there's an overlap between maternal care behavior and female sexual behavior. Uh, and as a, as a heterosexual man, I must tell you, I have benefited from that. You feel the care of, of the sexual love that you get. Um, you know, it's, it's both lustful and, and also this has this other wonderful, warm, fuzzy aspect to it. I thought also that is exactly what happens with empty nesters. When the mother or father lose the child, the child leaves the roost, leaves the nest, that it's obviously a withdrawal symptoms as well with these chemicals rushing through the brain. Yes. Um, you know, and, and everything in biology um, 
happens by degrees. You know, just as you have the average human being is, I don't know what height, maybe five foot seven or something. You know, some of us are five foot two, some of us are six foot two. Uh, there's enormous variability. And the same applies to everything biologically. You know, so these, just as some people have big ears and others have little ears, so too some people have big care systems and others have little care systems. Um, and uh, so it, it can be, uh, you know, for some parents, it's like quite a burden to have to care for this little sod. Uh, and for others, it's unbearable to lose the, the, that little sod. <laughs> it's a, and uh, I don't want to pretend that it's all reducible just to the chemistries, because these the wonderful thing about these brain systems uh, is that they are designed uh, to learn from experience. As I was saying earlier, in terms of the basic principles that you know you have this need, um, you have a deviation from where you need to be, you have an instinct that tells you how to get back, but the instinct doesn't always work. The rest is over to you to learn. And some of us learn well, some of us learn badly, and it's not always our own fault. You know, some of us are taught badly. Some of us are raised in very difficult circumstances where it's bloody hard to learn how to meet a need um, of these kinds. And so I don't want to pretend it all comes down just to, you know, we, we're not just chemistry sets. Uh, the, 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 the modulation of these needs, uh, the, the chemical uh, expressions of those needs, are modulated by learning from experience, by by the individual trajectory of you know of of, of your lived life. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that you recognise uh, because you know I'm, I'm trying to convey it, but I can see that in your case I'm pushing against an open door. How fundamentally important uh, is an understanding of these things for an understanding of our of our very selves and and our and our and society? Beautiful, a beautiful way to finish today. And I truly believe that. And it's, it's why I'm such a fan of your work and such a, a supporter of the work and the work of your colleagues as well. Antonio Damasio, Eric Kandel, and many, many other great authors who've written great books. This is a gem of a book, I have to say, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Mark, thank you again for joining us on part four. And I look forward to, we'll finish off feelings in the next part where we'll explore fear a little bit deeper we'll also go into i really wanted to go into seeking because i think it has such a strong pull on innovators or explorers those people who want to get out and explore the world it's always a pleasure thank you for joining us and see you very soon thanks i look forward to it Aiden. <laughs>